Hello and welcome to This Is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a look at the modern rock charts one month at a time. I'm Will Westerkow, and joining me today is my special guest, Matt Sebastian. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Do you want to say a little bit about who you are and what you do? I'm a journalist by day, but I also run a website called SlicingUpEyeballs.com. I've been doing it for about 10 years now, and it focuses on 80s college and alternative rock, tour news, album announcements, that kind of thing. And uh, I also host a show called Dark Wave on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's uh, first wave channel, the classic alternative channel, on Sunday nights. How did you end up starting Slicing Up Eyeballs? You know, I was um, working at a newspaper at the time. I was an editor, and I was kind of creatively uh, bored, maybe, I guess. And I had been a music critic for a few years earlier and was wanting to sort of come up with my own outlet. And so I started that. Um, and it's just something I can do on my own. And in terms of why I chose to focus on 80s alternative, I mean, obviously, it's, it's the music that I grew up with. At the time, there was a lot of interest in reissues, bands getting back together, probably starting with the Pixies, which obviously is where the title of the website comes from. I think there was a lot of sort of renewed interest, and it seemed like something that I could uh, have enough material to focus on. Very cool. All right, so we're talking about November 1991 today. This is a hell of a month on the charts. In addition to U2 and Nirvana and Primal Scream, who we're going to hear from, this is also the first time that Smashing Pumpkins charted on the modern rock charts. This is the first time that Blur charted on the modern rock charts. Pixies are on here. There's just like a whole bunch of stuff that I would have loved to listen to, and we just don't have the time or the space for it. So something was in the water, I guess. <laughs> The first new number one coming into November of 1991 was U2. We're going to hear their lead-off single from their new album, Octung Baby, and the single is called The Fly. But before we listen to it, let's talk about U2 a little bit. Tell me, were you a, were you a fan? Yeah, I was. I was uh, pretty big into them at this time. I'd heard them before the Joshua Tree, but the Joshua Tree was obviously a huge deal, and I, I really got into them then. And um, Octung Baby is still my favorite U2 album. I kind of lost interest in them more uh, into the 2000s, but th this, even more so than the Joshua Tree, I think is their greatest work. The anticipation for this record was so crazy. It was sort of known that they were doing something different sounding, and I, I don't exactly remember how that was conveyed in the media, but there was just so much anticipation for this, and... This song being the first single, obviously, it's probably the song that stands out the most on that record as being different from what they've been doing. And I, I remember the first time I heard it, I remember going to school. It had been announced that they would play it on the radio and, you know, whatever day. And it must have been at noon because I remember it was, I figured it was lunchtime. I'll take my Walkman, I'll tune it into the radio, and I'd listen to it at school. I even remember what the DJ said probably after playing it was that, they thought it sounded more like the cramps than U2. I never quite agreed with that, but... No, that's kind of a weird description. Um, do you remember your initial impression of Octung Baby? Like, was it shocking how different it was from Rattle and Hum or the Joshua Tree? It was, but, um, you know, if you look sort of back with Rattle and Hum, I don't know how familiar you are with the whole record. There's a song on there called God Part 2, which... It's not electronic or anything like that, but it's it sounds a lot more modern than what they were doing. And you take that in the one single they released between Rattle and Hum and Octung Baby, 
was a cover of Cole Porter's Night and Day that they did for a tribute album, which was heavily electronic. Right. And that was quite a big deal at the time. And it kind of sort of foreshadowed where they were going. With The Fly, it's really, you know, the guitars that really stand out. It's not Edge's sort of signature chiming guitar sound. And you have the distorted vocals, the falsetto. It's just, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and listen to The Fly by U2 and see what we think. I still love it. You know, it, I think they meant it as a statement song, but I think it holds up. I just like the guitar. I like the solo that sort of goes through the whole end of the song. I think it's great. The uh, falsetto, which interesting, you know, live, They, I think this was a hard one for them to figure out live, and it ended up being the edge doing that part. You know, it's definitely got a dancier feel than a lot of their earlier work, and in some way, it makes me think that they're kind of bandwagon jumping because this was a, a sound that was becoming very popular, especially in England. You know, dance culture and rave culture was much more popular over there than over here. But, you know, at the same time, it doesn't really sound like those other bands. It, it somehow, I don't know, I, when, I, when I hear the song and then think about Jesus Jones, not to knock that band, but it makes them sound like a bunch of amateurs. Like, you 2 just, it's the sound of it just sounds impressive i don't know what else to say about it yeah and it um maybe compared to some of the earlier stuff it doesn't sound like an arena rock band as much although it's still i mean i think they were trying to get away from that but it still has that and it certainly having seen them play this live and it is a song they brought back later it works you know it's it's a great song in concert um it helps they did a big visual presentation with it too which which is part of it but what kind of presentation you know, they called it the Zoo TV Tour, and they had a lot of big video screens. They had these German Trabant cars hanging from the ceiling, uh, used as spotlights. And with The Fly in particular, it was a series of flashing words and phrases, some of the lyrics from the song, but everything you know is wrong, stuff like mm-hmm. that, other things as well. Because they would play it kind of second in the set after Zoo Station, and it really was the, sort of the first showing off of this at the time, very high-tech multimedia stage presentation. That can be pretty standard for big rock bands now, but at the time, that was that was more like a pop world kind of deal. And Yeah, it, it was pretty unusual at the time. They sort of pioneered a lot of things, including once they moved to stadiums, sort of the B stage, having a little stage come out into the middle of the audience. They were one of the first to do that. What I remember most about this tour and being so impressed about was is they came out and they played six or seven straight songs off Octung Baby. I mean, they decided beforehand that they were all in on this record and whatever the fans thought, this was how they were doing it. It's a confidence I think they would sort of lose later on in their career and were more more willing to uh, fall back on the old material or whatever to please the fans. In this case, I mean, it helps that it was a strong album, but... Sure. For a band that's over 10 years old with past big hits to come out and really focus on the new album like that was pretty impressive. So The Fly is not just a song, it's also a persona. And um, I, I don't know too much about the details. 
did Bono debut the persona as part of the the set, like on stage? Yeah, probably even originally in, in the video for The Fly. Really, the fly persona was just him in leather suit with uh, the big wraparound glasses. Right, yeah. The thing that's interesting to me about the fly persona is that that is an image that I've heard to some extent he got lost in, and uh, it became kind of hard to separate the fly from Bono in some ways. And I think there are a lot of maybe casual fans who, when they think of Bono, they think of the fly and... I know I know a lot of people who, if you mention U2, they kind of roll their eyes or they scoff or maybe even outright say, I hate U2, they're awful and Bono's a dick. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, I, and I wonder how much of that can be traced back to this fly persona because the whole idea was that he was dressing and acting like a, an asshole rock star. Yeah, basically, especially after they had been, their previous persona, especially during the Joshua Tree, was, you know, stone-faced, serious, these, you know... Mm-hmm. Irish rockers visiting America. Overly earnest, I think I've heard them described as. Mm -hmm. So The Fly was at number one on the modern rock charts for two weeks in November. And then a new one comes along, and this is by a band called Nirvana. This is the first time they showed up on the modern rock charts. Nirvana is a rock band from Aberdeen, Washington, and they were formed in 1987 by a couple of friends, Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic. Some early band names before they came up with Nirvana were The Sellouts, Skid Row, and Ted Ed Fred. (laughs) I I don't know what's up with the Skid Row, and I have no idea when the other band Skid Row formed. I would have thought they would have been a band that were known by that point. but I would think so. uh, I'm glad they went with Nirvana, though, and not Ted Ed Fred. That's (laughs) (laughs) Too close to right, said Fred. Yeah, exactly. So Nirvana put out one album on Sub Pop, ditched their drummer, picked up Dave Grohl, who would later go on to be the leader of the Foo Fighters. They signed to DGC in 1990, and this record, Nevermind, became a huge deal. And the story that people tell now, and the reason people say it's such a big deal, is because it hit number one by January of 1992, and it famously displaced Michael Jackson's Dangerous at the top of the album charts. And so a lot of people point to this and say, like, yes, this is the moment where rock uh, exploded and grunge music blew up and it changed everything. Did it feel like that at the time? Like in November 1991, could you tell this was such a big deal? You know, it definitely was. And I, although I can't say for sure by November, I remember it being a big deal. I remember a friend of mine at school was just way into Nevermind. Like he was always talking it up. I was more into... Um, Gish, the first Smashing Pumpkins album. So we would, you know, he would be like, you got to get Nevermind. I said, no, you should get Gish. And then on top of this, this was in, in the San Diego area. Eddie Vedder had, had, before going up to Seattle, had lived in the area, went to my high school. And his brother, or one of his stepbrothers, still went to school. And so he was always talking up his brother, Eddie's band Pearl Jam, well before that came out. So I remember a lot of that going on. Teen Spirit was so big on MTV. It felt like that video was played all the time. I couldn't tell you exactly when this happened, but this the senior year, all the schools in the area did essentially what's a lip sync contest. They called it air bands. And usually it was an elaborate production with costumes and all that. People would do Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation with 30 dancers kind of thing. Wow. And so these three guys get up there with a drum set, a guitar and bass, and then basically mime their way through Teen Spirit. And this was my first indication of how big the song was. 
the whole gym turned into a mosh pit and they actually canceled the event, kicked everybody out. Wow. So yeah, that, that kind of thing was going on. And I, and I remember as they were blowing up, they were touring with the Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam and they played in San Diego. It was like two days after Christmas and my family had gone to see my grandparents. And so I, I remember flying back. It was the night they were playing. And so I missed that. And it was the kind of thing where they were second on the bill, but probably could have closed the show over the Chili Peppers. And the Chili Peppers were plenty big at the time. Yeah. Just looking at the charts, I guess I had some questions about why the focus is always on, on Nirvana because Chili Peppers album, Blood Sugar Sex Magic came out the same day as Nevermind. And both of them were huge hits. Nevermind went to number one, but Chili Peppers, I think, got up to number three or four or something like that on the album yeah. charts. And Give It Away was a number one hit on the modern rock charts. So this band was huge, too. And I'm wondering if at least a part of that is expectations from the record labels and from the industry. Because Chili Peppers had been around for quite a while. They had been building a following, and each album had sold more than the previous. And so I think everyone was expecting that the Chili Peppers would have a very successful album expectations for Nevermind were that it would sell a quarter of a million and it wildly exceeded that expectation. So I think a lot of people who are supposed to be experts on this sort of thing were really caught by surprise. I think that's exactly right. I mean, there was no track record for Nirvana to do what they did. Let's talk about Smells Like Teen Spirit. An unusual name. I think most people know the story at this point, but Teen Spirit was a brand of deodorant or antiperspirant or something that was yeah. marketed towards teens back in the day. I remember seeing a lot of those commercials. Teen Spirit, a physical sensation with fragrance is made for you. Teen Spirit, the harder you play, the harder it works. Teen Spirit. <laughs> uh, I believe the story is that Kurt Cobain's girlfriend at the time used Teen Spirit deodorant and her smell rubbed off on Kurt and Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill. She was a friend and she thought Kurt Cobain smelled like this deodorant. She was kind of making fun of him and so she wrote some graffiti on on his wall. Kurt smells like Teen Spirit and Kurt had no idea that it was deodorant. <laughs> Just thought it sounded like a, a cool thing. And you know it kind of does. Like if you don't know, yeah. if you're not familiar with the, with the uh, deodorant, just the concept of smelling like teen spirit, like it's very evocative. Yeah. And you see where that video comes from. Yeah. So anyway, let's give it a listen. Here is Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. Even after hearing it a million times, I mean, it's still a powerful song. I still get it. It sounds, it sounds great. It does. And I got to say, like, Dave Grohl is a beast. Yeah. When those drums kick in, they just pound. And there's not too many other songs that we're hearing on the modern rock charts that just hit that hard. I mean, not just the drums, but that it's just the perfect beginning to the song, the way the guitar comes in, mm -hmm. drums, the bass. You know... Kurt always famously said that, that, you know, that was the song he ripped off from the Pixies. And yeah, I mean, that's the sort of loud, quiet, loud dynamic, the the, the sort of throbbing bass line. Mm -hmm. It's probably most reminiscent of Gouge Away. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think anyone who's familiar with the Pixies will will hear that for sure. And I'm a huge Pixies fan. I love the Pixies. I love Frank Black. But Kurt Cobain, he has something in his voice that is, yeah. Uh, he just can do things that other people can't. And I don't mean that in the sense that he's like a beautiful singer. I mean that he like connects with your soul. <laughs> like yeah. he yeah. he's like he's emoting. Like you feel his pain. You feel his anguish. Even if he's singing total nonsense garbage, it's somehow making you like I don't know. It's wrapping you up and grabbing you. Yeah, and to me, the lyrics, some of it feels like nonsense, but then you have something like, here we are now, entertain us, mm-hmm. uh, which was essentially, you know, defining a generation almost. Sure. I should also mention, getting into this alternative rock game a little late, I actually heard the Weird Al parody version before I heard the original version. And um, the first cassette I ever bought was Weird Al's Off the Deep End, which features a parody cover of uh, Nirvana's Nevermind. So it's pretty close to the original, <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes when I hear Nirvana, I still uh, insert some of the Weird Al lyrics. So I, I guess here's what I expected, just from like reading books and reading articles and hearing about this kind of after the fact. I expected I was going to look, and Nirvana would be at number one on the modern rock charts for you know six, seven, eight weeks, like it would be this total domination of the charts just taking over and then everything following that would be similar type of bands and that's definitely not the case there's not a lot of other nirvana type bands who show up for quite a while yeah it wasn't that fast no but even beyond that smells like teen spirit is only at number one on the charts for one solitary week and i have not found any evidence of this at all but it's hard to see this where U2 is at the top spot. They've got this new album and it's a really, really good album. And you can imagine they release this thing and they know it's good. And they're like, this is our moment. And they've got two weeks on top with a fly. And then this unknown, virtually unknown band Nirvana comes up and uh, like knocks them out of the top spot on, uh, on the modern rock charts. And I don't think they actually rush released their next single to like combat Nirvana but it's hard not to imagine that's the case. Yeah, and I remember, I don't know if this is just my rationalization or if this was sort of common thought at the time, but it seemed to me like The Fly was a statement more than anything, Mm. and maybe they didn't expect it to be a commercial single, and so they slotted in mysterious ways right after that. Sure, and that's probably more of the case. But regardless, Nirvana's on top for one week, and then U2 releases their next single from Octoon Baby. And that song is called Mysterious Ways. And it climbs to the top of the modern rock charts, hits number one, stays there for nine weeks in a row. And um, this this one's a big one. Yeah, I wasn't as, as fond of this one. The guitar sound is cool, but it, it always felt a little slight to me. Hmm. I did like it a lot better after seeing it in concert. They, they really sort of blew it up in concert with, you know, big, huge solo from the edge, but... 
That's interesting because I was very familiar with Mysterious Ways. I don't know if it was appearing on movie soundtracks or if it was still getting radio play or whatever, but um, I wasn't hearing The Fly, and I didn't hear The Fly until some years later when I picked up the album. And so to me, like Mysterious Ways is like huge super hit, the one that's like embedded itself in popular conscious, and The Fly is one that sort of disappeared a little bit. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. But, you know, we've already talked about you, too, so I guess we can just jump into it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah here it is, Mysterious Ways. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, you know, I, I might have unfairly maligned it a little bit. I, I think as a single after the fly, or maybe in the context of the album, it's not my favorite, but it it showed uh, more of the new side of U2. It's certainly more rhythmic than they had probably ever done before. Sure. In fact, I read a quote from Bono where he described it as U2 at their funkiest. I think he said Sly and the Family Stone meets Madchester Baggy. I don't know if I hear that. I, I'm not sure I would quite describe it as uh, as super funky, but um, there's yeah. there's some kind of some kind of groove going on there. Yeah. And I was reading about the origin of the song, and apparently this was built around the bass line. the The band was improvising. They were working on a song I think called Skinny Puppy, but the band didn't like the song. They only liked the bass line, and so they were trying to make a song around it. Uh, while they were in the studio recording the album, the producer Daniel Lanois. He had some pretty strong ideas about the direction of this song, and Bono disagreed. And apparently, they had like a two-hour standoff that almost ended <laughs> in fisticuffs. <laughs> and I think Daniel Lanois got his way, which is pretty interesting. I, I don't know how often it is where producers get to outvote the band in terms of what direction the music's going, but it really shows the amount of trust the band placed in Daniel Lanois as a producer. Well, certainly at this point, they had worked with Lanois and Eno three this i think was the third album and i suppose the track record spoke for itself sure i would say so for anyone interested in the making of octung baby they did a documentary a few years ago called from the sky down which is pretty interesting about the sessions and um one and i even remember hearing this at the time they really had a hard time figuring out what the hell they were doing they clearly wanted to do something different and i think there was dissension between bono and the edge and then mm-hmm. larry mullen and Adam Clayton over the direction. And it was when they finally cracked one was was sort of what got the album going once they figured that out. Interesting. Uh, I will I will check that one out. Do we know what this song is about? Is it um, does you two sing about specific things? They do sometimes. There there are a number of songs on Octoon Baby that I, I from what I've read are about the uh, breakup of the Edge's marriage. Uh, mm. Bono wrote them, but that was going on immediately preceding the making of this that's interesting because i i believe that the music video for mysterious ways features the edge's future wife as a belly dancer yeah she she was on the tour i think as as well yeah hmm. u2 has their biggest problem i think is that they still want to be a hit pop band and they sort of go into each album even as they get older and their audience gets older thinking how they can appeal to the kids 
and mm-hmm. it's been quite a while since that happened. Probably Vertigo was the last time they really had a true hit. Sure. Okay. So we're going to move on and talk about one more band. We've heard all the number ones for the month of November, so we're going to jump down to number two on the charts, and we're going to hear from a band called Primal Scream. Do you know much about Primal Scream? Yeah. This was the year they released Screamadelica. They, they had been around since the, I think, mid-'80s. Bobby Gillespie, the leader of Primal Scream, had been the drummer in the Jesus and Mary chain originally. Mm-hmm. He might have even had Primal Scream going before the Jesus and Mary Chain, and then he finally quit the the Mary Chain to focus on Primal Scream. Yeah, he formed Primal Scream in 82. I'm not sure when he joined Jesus and Mary Chain, but I do know that after Primal Scream released their very first single, uh, the Reed Brothers from Jesus and Mary Chain gave Gillespie an ultimatum and said, it's Jesus and Mary Chain or Primal Scream, and you can't be in both. And so uh, he made his choice. And the Reed Brothers chose a drum machine to replace him. What do you think? Did they make the right call? I actually, uh, I am partial to the sort of mix of live guitars and drum machines, whether it's Sisters of Mercy or, or Jesus and Mary Chain. I think it's a, it maybe it's a dated 80s sound, but I, I've always been partial to that. Yeah, it's a cool sound. Uh, so in 1991, like you said, Primal Scream released Screamadelica. This was their third album. It's clearly influenced by house music and rave culture and all that sort of thing. There's clear drug influences here. It's also heavily influenced by the Beach Boys classic album Pet Sounds, which maybe isn't quite as obvious when you listen to it. And this album was hailed as a classic by critics. It shows up on a lot of best of the 90s lists, as do the two previous albums we talked about on the show today. Screamadelka sold a ton of copies in the UK, not so much in the US. And I was pretty amazed. I was reading a review of this one, and it was described as... I'm quoting here, having an impact that rivaled that of Nirvana's Nevermind in the UK. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's quite a claim. I mean, I know the impact of, of Nevermind, and so to think that Screamadelica had a similar impact in the UK is pretty amazing. Yeah, it was it was pretty big, and the um, Andrew Weatherall, who produced a bunch of the songs on it, died recently uh, in the last year or so, and he was and, and went on to be a successful DJ. But uh, his obituaries were largely based on the fact that he was the co-producer of Screamadelica. Yeah. And have you listened to other Primal Scream? Because I've heard a little bit here and there, and um, their sound seems to jump around. Like, sometimes it seems like they're more of a straight-up rock band, and sometimes it seems like they're more of a dance band. Yeah, this was quite a departure. They originally were sort of a jangly band. You know, if you're familiar with the the so-called C86 genre, that was named after a cassette that came free with the NME in 1986. They had a song on that, so it was more of a sort of jangly indie pop kind of thing. They did a couple albums like that. This was a big left turn. One of the songs maybe come together, or maybe it was loaded. One of them was built, uh, I believe by Andrew Weatherall, off a sample of one of their previous album songs, and then this, they turned it into a dance track and, and put new lyrics over it. Um, hmm. And then after this, they went and did kind of a southern rock album, and then they turned... I don't even know what you call it. They did a couple albums where uh, Manny from the Stone Roses joined on bass, and then later even Kevin Shields from My Bloody Valentine. I don't know if he was ever officially in the band. When I saw Primal Scream in 2000, he was playing in the band, at least the touring version. That's pretty cool. I had no idea. Yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and listen to it. We're going to be hearing the song Moving On Up by Primal Scream. It hit number two on the modern rock charts. I was lost, 
I know this sounds weird because I, I do know the song already and have heard it a lot, but it still sounds instantly familiar and not in the way of like, I know this song, but it feels like it's borrowing from other songs that I can't quite put my finger on. It feels like a Rolling Stones song. Well, th- there's that for sure. Yeah, it definitely has a strong Rolling Stones feel. But right from the beginning, it almost seems like, let me put it this way. I looked this song up because I expected it to be built on a bunch of samples of older songs, like from the 60s. And as far as I could tell, there are no samples in the song. And so that kind of surprised me. It almost feels like, you remember when, like, I don't know, Fatboy Slim or something was kind of doing his thing in the 90s and like grabbing pieces of songs and splicing them all together. And the result kind of felt familiar in a strange way. It sort of has that vibe to me. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it, it certainly could be that kind of thing. Uh, it almost feels like they decided, let's write a Rolling Stones song with a bit more of a modern dance beat on it. Mm-hmm. It's the first song on the album, and it's not that characteristic of the rest of the music, which does get somewhat dancier and druggier. The song that I most remember, Loaded, which I think was probably the first single off of Screamadelica, I really remember hearing that, and that does have samples, but... Mm-hmm. That is more of a sort of constructed dance song. I remember buying the CD single on that one with a bunch of remixes, that kind of thing. Yeah. I was into them, but I don't remember buying Screamadelica right away. And it still for a while was sort of, once I did get it, it's this record that has like three big singles on it and then some really different other stuff in between. I think that song, Moving On Up, was like under four minutes. And the album is just chock full of these seven minute eight minute ten minute songs yeah there's there's not too many songs on the album that are like you know what you would expect to be single radio play type of length yeah and then there's even like um damaged which is just sort of an acoustic almost a country ballad it's definitely a unique record with a lot of different things going on which you know sort of speaks to primal screams career as a whole most of their other albums i think are probably sound a little more cohesive than this one does sure i mean i like this song a lot i think it's good it kind of makes me want to dance a little bit it's catchy and memorable but it certainly doesn't hit me the way that smells like teen spirit does and um, especially if i can imagine listening to them both like hearing them at the same exact time as a teenager I mean, there's there's really no contest there. Like, I would have gravitated toward Nirvana uh, 100%. Yeah. I do want to give a quick mention. The woman who's doing background singing on Moving On Up, her name is Denise Johnson, and she's actually featured all over the album Screamadelica. And uh, I just wanted to give, you know, give her a mention because she died earlier this year. Yeah, that is true. And she wasn't just featured on this song. She also appeared on a song we heard... A few episodes back, she was on Electronics Get the Message. And so she's popping up here and there on the modern rock charts. And, you know, she's a person who, as a background singer, is really important to these songs and to the sound of these songs, but is not someone who gets the recognition that they probably deserve. And I believe she was, uh, when she died, she was pretty close to putting out her first album of her own. Oh, is that right? Um, yeah, she she did a lot of a lot of sort of the Manchester stuff, including a lot of not just electronic, but she worked with New Order quite a bit, and I think some of that Factory Records crew. Okay, well, I guess that's our show. Matt, did you um, did you have anything you want to plug, or you, uh, you want to like send people your way somehow? SlicingUpEyeballs.com, or if you, if you have Sirius XM Radio, I'm on Sunday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific. Okay. 
Well, great. Um, thank you so much for joining me. This was a lot of fun, and uh, I learned a lot. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. We'll catch you all next time in December 1991. Bye.